Problems don't stand in line, do they? They don't take a number. They don't stand there single file and say, you know, you're next, okay? When problems come, they're like bananas and grapes. They come in bunches. You ever notice that? And it's not just a financial problem. It's a physical problem. It's, it's a domestic problem. It's a wayward child. It's, a, it's marital problems. It's problems down at work. And these things just kind of, they pile up. And as they say, when it rains, it pours. That's kind of the way it works. You say, well, Pastor... I'm there right now. I can't take any more. I'm at wit's end. If you're a Christian who is sincere, and if you're a Christian who is trying to do your best, and if you're a Christian who is waiting on God and wondering where the answer is coming from and when it's going to come, I want you to listen very carefully. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn back to the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles in the 20th chapter, 2 Chronicles 20. As you turn in, I remind you of a promise in the Bible that there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful in that he will not suffer or allow you to be tempted above that which you're able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You say, well, pastor, I'm there right now. I I can't take any more. I'm at wit's end. And if that promise is true, I need help from God. Well, here's a passage, here's a chapter in the Bible that... uh, so wonderfully shows us the hand of God in helping His people. And we're going to look at the whole chapter here in just a moment, but by way of background, there's a prophet talking in verse number 15 of this this chapter. He's talking to a nation, the nation of Israel or Judah, actually. Their backs are to the wall, and they need help from God. Here's the message. Verse 15, And he, the prophet, said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. I love that last part of that verse. I've underlined it in my Bible, and that's the title of the message. The battle is not yours, but God's. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to help us to listen carefully as we look at this passage, line upon line, precept upon precept. We draw truth out of it, and we apply it to our lives at this time. Father, I pray that it would strengthen our our homes and our church, and Father, that you would use this time to encourage your people. We pray all this now in Jesus' precious name, amen. If you're a Christian who is sincere, and if you're a Christian who is trying to do your best, and if you're a Christian who is waiting on God and wondering where the answer is coming from and when it's going to come, I want you to listen very carefully. The years between 900 and 800 B.C., roughly right around there. David, of course, had been king about 1,000 B.C., and a number of kings had come and gone. The nation had actually split at that time into the north and into the south. And really the north, which we know as Israel, really never had a good king. And they just got worse and worse and worse and worse. By this time, they're the pits. But Judah, the southern kingdom, where the temple was, kind of stayed on track a little bit longer. But now it had gotten to hit and miss. Good king, bad king. Good king, bad king. Two good kings, one bad king. 
Well, we find a king at that time by the name of Jehoshaphat. You're familiar, perhaps, with that name. And he came at a time where kings were kind of hit and miss. Well, he's doing his best to restore the, the, uh, the kingdom of Israel to a theocracy, to a, a country that followed God. And at that particular time, was trying to do right, and the people were doing pretty well as well. But there were these enemy nations that came up against Judah and Jerusalem, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and also the inhabitants of Mount Seir. Now, Moab and Ammon really had descended from Lot. If you remember that awful sword story back in Genesis chapter 19 of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and how Lot fled from the city, his wife turned to salt, he went into the mountain with his two daughters, had an awful thing happen up there, and two offsprings as a result of his daughters, and they became the nation of Moab and Ammon. Well, those nations had expanded. And now they're bitter enemies of God's people. And they outnumber God's people. They outgun God's people, if you will. And we find that Jehoshaphat gets some awful news. They're coming confederated all against him. And there's no way in the world the little Jewish army can handle this huge army, this confederacy. So Jehoshaphat, first of all, gets along with God. Then he proclaims a fast. He goes to the house of God, and spontaneously, the people of God start showing up. It's a wonderful thing to read about. They remind God of his promises to them, and then they ask favor of God. And that's where the story unfolds. In verse number 12 here, we read in chapter 20, they say, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. I love it. It's exactly the attitude they should have had. They're in a jam. There's no question about that. And they admit, we don't know what to do. Ah, but our eyes are on thee. No way out. But as God had told them, the battle is not yours, but it's God's. As we look at this, this glorious passage here, I find several things within it. I find, first of all, what I call a, a, a duplicated problem. It wasn't just one issue, it, it was several. It was compounded, it was multiplied. A duplicated problem. The problem is, it wasn't just Moab coming out against them. They could have probably handled that. It wasn't just the Ammonites coming out against them. They could have probably handled that. It wasn't just the inhabitants of Mount Seir coming out against them. They might have handled that. But they all came at the same time, and that's kind of how problems work, even in our lives. If it was just one thing, maybe we could handle it. But problems don't stand in line, do they? They don't take a number. They don't, they don't stand there single file and say, you know, you're next, okay? When problems come, they're like bananas and grapes. They come in bunches. You ever notice that? And, and, and it's not just a financial problem. It's a physical problem. It's, it's a domestic problem. It's a wayward child. It's, a, it's marital problems. It's problems down at work. And these things just kind of, they pile up. Problems in school, problems in the ministry, problems with in-laws. And as they say, when it rains, it pours. That's kind of the way it works. So Judah finds out all these problems are coming against them at the same time. It's a, it's a duplication of problems because the devil normally works that way. He sees to it that they all come at us at once. Here's the Moabites, here's the Ammonites, here's the inhabitants of Mount Seir, and they all come together at the same time. We see the duplicated problem. Secondly, we see the divine potentate. We see the sovereign one. We see the entrance of God here, and I'm so glad for that. In, in verse 1, 
It says, It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. There's the duplicated problem. Verse 2 says, Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in uh, Hazans and Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. What a good idea. They get serious. They realize their backs are to the wall. They realize they have no power within themselves to get out of this jam. The Bible tells us in verse 3 that Jehoshaphat feared. Now you say, that's not faith, pastor. That's not trusting God. I know. But probably it's the way we'd have all reacted, isn't it? I know the Bible says, be careful for nothing. Meaning, full of care or anxious for nothing. We're not supposed to fear. But that's easy to preach, okay? Because I've been in a similar situation, not perhaps as bad as this, but I know that fear is the first feeling that we feel. Well, the last part of verse number 3 says, they, they sought the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. They get serious. They, they know they're out of their league. They know this is way beyond them. There's no human way possible to get out of this. They need a divine potentate. They need God and they realize it. You know, sometimes uh, things are so far gone, honestly, you can, you can laugh because it's so incredible, or you can look up because that's the only direction you can look. There is no deliverance from this way, that way, that way, that way, only that way when things get that bad. So we look up. We look up. That's what these folks did. Have you ever looked up to heaven when you realize it was just beyond you? You know, I told the Lord when we came to Fargo, this is beyond us. I'm just along for the ride. And, and I have no idea what you're going to do here. And I've just let God take it. And you know what? And I said it earlier today. I sleep well at night because it's God's work. You know, Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church, right? He didn't say, upon this rock, I'll build your church. Or upon this rock, I want you to build my church. He said, upon this rock, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what do the Jews do when their backs are to the wall? Well, in verse 4, it says, And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat, notice this, stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Here's what he did. He went to the house of God. Ah, What a novel thought. His back was to the wall, And he showed up. He attended, if you will. He assembled, and the people assembled with him. It was like a spontaneous revival. The ripples just kind of shot out. The Spirit of God moved in the midst of the people, and they started showing up one at a time. The the hinges on the, the doors of the temple began to squeak, and folks came in by the droves, and they assembled because God stirred their heart. When our backs are to the wall, don't stop attending church. Attendance is very important at such times. God help us to get to the place where we realize we need all the services all the time. And so these people come, it's impromptu, it's unplanned, it's instinctive almost. 
It's, it's kind of extemporaneous. It's a voluntary assembly of people who come together and they start filling in the church pews there, if you will. And they say, we need God. We need God. Folks, we need God. How bad does it have to get before we realize we need God? And we show up in the house of God. I'll never forget when that Iraqi thing broke out in the uh, early 90s. There was a sobering in this community. There were people that were they're coming. We'd never seen them before. And they got serious for a while. It was a real short war, wasn't it? And then business as usual. You know, it happened again around 9-11. And then business as usual. You know, what is it going to take? Is it going to take a, a stock market crash? Is it going to take another depression? Is it going to take something very dire and chaotic for, for this country to wake up? God help us as a nation. You know, when our backs are to the wall, if church is good enough for us then, it ought to be good enough for us all the time. These people attended. Now, also, when things get, get bad, what we do need is faith. And where do we get faith? Remember? Romans ten seventeen. Faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And where do we hear the Word of God? Unless you're reading it out loud at home during the week, it's really not talking about that. It's talking about the house of God and the preaching of the Word of God and faith coming as a result of that. You know, I know a lot of Christians, when things go south, what they do is they stop, they stop attending church, which is totally opposite. Folks, when things go bad, don't drop out of church. That's exactly what the devil wants. You're playing into his hand. Don't do that, please. What you need at that time, the very best place you can be is the house of God when your back is to the wall. The devil would love to get you off to the side alone. The devil would love to divide and conquer. He works just like the roaring lion, right? Who sees the zebra off by himself and and picks him out and picks him off. And so don't get alone. Stay in the house of God at such times. Keep those hinges on the door squeaking at that time. First of all, we find they attend. In verses 6 through 9... They're in the house of God, and Jehoshaphat's praying, and he says, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And and they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying... If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for the name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help us. You know what Jehoshaphat is doing there? He's quoting something from, I think it's uh, First or Second Kings, I think it's chapter 8. And Solomon's dedicating the temple, and he's saying this very stuff. And so what Jehoshaphat is doing is he's reminding God of some promise he has made back yonder. So first of all, they attend the house of God. Secondly, they acknowledge who God is. In verse number 6, Jehoshaphat said, O Lord, God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? Yep. And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? True. And in thine hand is there not power and might? Uh Uh-huh. So that none is able... To withstand thee. That's right. That's right. He reminds God of all of that. And it's all true there. 
You know, it's not presumptuous to remind God of His promises and of His character and who He is and what He's told us He would do. He didn't mind that a bit. You say, oh, I don't want to get in God's face. No, God wants us to remind Him of the promises He's made to us. And so Jehoshaphat is wisely doing something that pleases the Lord here. Now, in verse 9, he says, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now, behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given to inherit. They're reminding God of some things. They're acknowledging some things. So with backs to the wall, with this divine potentate in mind, we find an attendance. We find an acknowledgement. Thirdly, we find an admittance. They admit some things. They admit their inability against this great crowd. In verse number 12, they say, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. They're in a pickle. That's not real spiritual. But they realize they're in a jam. This is bad. And they admit it. They know they don't know what to do. And they admit it. And they say, God, we need you. You know, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? That word faith means dependence upon God. Without a dependence upon God, when we act independent of God, it displeases the Lord greatly because without faith, it's impossible to please God. I spent some time with my grandson this afternoon. And he can't, he can't walk, he can't crawl, he can't do that stuff. He can only reach out his arms to me and I carry him around and I absolutely love it and I, I dread the day when he will get independent and when I pick him up, he will say those words, down, down. I hate those words. I've raised enough kids to come to hate them. And I realize when a kid hits that stage, you know, we need God. We need to admit we need God because it pleases God when we acknowledge that we need him. Do you need God? I need God. I need God right now. Some of you, I, you know the story. And I, I need God. I told my wife this last week. We need God. We absolutely need God. And God never gets sick of us telling him that. God never gets sick of us asking him for things. God never tires of us acknowledging our dependency upon him because our dependency upon him pleases him. We should acknowledge it. We should admit it. We find them admitting it. The last part of verse number 12, they say, We have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. They were frozen. They, they stood there. They, they were speechless. All they could do was pray, ask for wisdom, ask for discernment, uh, study their Bible. And it's the same way with us today. We get in these Red Sea situations, don't we? Where uh, our face is to the Red Sea and our back is to the invading army and, and we're pinned in and, and, and we are clueless on what to do. We pray, we try and get the mind of Christ, we study the Word of God and we admit to God we need help. The Jews admitted it here. They admitted it. Pride says, I've got the answer. And pride says, I can do this. I can handle this. I've been down this before. And that's okay, God. I, I got it covered. And God goes, pew. I, I don't need any of that. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We can get like Samson to where we, we, we say, uh, I'll shake myself as at other times, and God goes, oh, brother. No. We need God, and we need to admit it. And that is the reason the Jews got help. They, they, they said, we, need, we don't know what to do against this army. Our eyes are upon thee. So there was an attendance. There was an acknowledgement. They admitted. And then fourthly, they awaited. They awaited. The answer from heaven, like I said earlier today, normally is shortly. It's around the corner. There's, there's a waiting time. In verse 13, notice it says, And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. All they could do is wait. What a tender scene, by the way. I, I love reading that. They're just standing there. And, and it's a solemn time. There's husbands and wives hand in hand, and they're looking up. There's little children around them, and, and they're not really even sure why they're there. They're just playing with the, the dirt. And there's teens, and there's preschoolers, and there's families. There's, there's the nation of Israel there. And they're just standing, and they're just, they're just waiting for God to do something. You could have heard a pin drop. They need God. And so we find them waiting on God. By the way, that's the part I don't like. That's probably the part you don't like. We get impatient. I think wait is uh, the worst four-letter word there really is sometimes. You, you just wish that God would do it and do it now. But Isaiah 40 says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and so on and so forth. And so sometimes we need to just wait. Don't jump the gun. I've seen a lot of Christians jump the gun. I've seen a lot of young people jump the gun and, uh, and say, well, God's not going to bring me somebody. I'll just go find this person. They're, they're a good Christian and uh, they, they, they're saved, quote unquote, and they, they just fear being an old maid or a bachelor forever and they run ahead of God and make a mistake. God says, be still and know that I am God. And we find these Jews just standing there still and waiting upon God. Verse 13 says, they, they stood before the Lord. They stood before the Lord. You know, that's one of the hardest things to do is just stand before God and wait for Him. I, I mean, I, I get like Daffy Duck sometimes, just bouncing off the walls, you know, and i got to make a move, got to do something, gotta, whatever. I'm a Martha, and uh, maybe you're that way as well. Just have to do something. And uh, normally it's hit the panic button. Uh, they're not hitting the panic button here. They're just, again, verse 13. All Judas stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. That's wonderful. They awaited. So what's the result? Well, fifthly, we find the answer. The answer comes. Verse 14 says, Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. And thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow... Go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz. And ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeriel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, 
and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. You know, I find twice here in that passage where God says, don't fear, don't worry. You know, I love a God who doesn't want us to worry. I find throughout the Bible God telling sincere Christians like Daniel, fear not, fear not. The Lord telling the disciples, fear not, fear not. The Bible says God hath not given unto us the spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. We find in verse 17 these words, be not dismayed. Be not dismayed. That word means beaten down or discouraged. God doesn't want us walking around discouraged and beaten down. If you have health issues, be not dismayed. If you have a, a house payment you're, you're behind on, be not dismayed. If, if you have marital problems, if you have other issues, whatever it might be, be not dismayed. God says, fear not. God says, I have, I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. God is going to take care of you. We find this duplicated problem. We find this divine potentate. Thirdly, we find what I call a different plan. It's a really weird, odd plan. In verse 16, again we read it, Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeriel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves. Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. That's weird. No talk of going out to battle doing this and doing that. No swords, no, no helmets, no shields, no spears. I mean, not even put the kids in the house to keep them safe. Everybody just go out and God will take care of the problem here. That's God's plan. And it's a perfect plan. You know why? Because all it requires on the part of God's people is obedience. 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 You know, if all of us would just do what God says, how much happier we'd be if we would just not complicate what God says. Just nothing more, nothing less, just obedience. God has a plan. Often it's a different plan. Years earlier, when Joshua and company came up to the, the city walls of Jericho there, Joshua was out surveying the issue that night before and and probably in his mind, considering if they could catapult over the walls or, or maybe uh, throw flaming arrows in or, or, or maybe uh, send dive bombers somehow down or, or take battering rams against him. Or he's got all kinds of ideas and, and the Lord shows up. You remember the story. And he gives Joshua the plan. It's God's plan to just march around the city and eventually the walls will fall down. And I'm sure Joshua's going... What about that battering ram idea, Lord? Well, you know, and, and, and probably thinking this is nuts. But God's plan is a perfect plan. And the Bible is God's plan. It's God's instruction. We just need to do what God says. So in verse 16, he says, Tomorrow, go ye down against them. Yeah, yeah. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz. Mm-hmm, okay. And you shall find them at the end of the brook. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Before the wilderness of, of, of Jeriel. Okay, okay. And then God says, just show up. Just show up. Just go out there and stand. I'm sure Jehoshaphat thinks it's going to be a slaughter. What, what, what's the deal here? No, it works perfectly. It always works perfectly. God's plan is perfect. We just need to stay out of the way. 
How many times is God trying to accomplish something in our lives and we get in the way? You know, I was trying to feed my grandson this afternoon and he, he kept putting his hands out there and finally I had to put my arms around it and hold his arms down and put it in that way. He's trying to help me. Hey, not much help, I'll guarantee you. We try to get our hands in there, don't we? That's just like us. When really we just need to stay out of the way. We often run ahead against God. Or run ahead of God. And we work against God in the, in the process. You know, I, I was talking earlier today to our class in the balcony about uh, Abraham. Good man. I, I mean, really a man of faith. But ran ahead of God. God had promised a son of promise in his old age that would inherit the lineage of the Jews. But Abraham kind of took matters into his own hands, didn't he? And the result was Ishmael. And you have the Arabs and the Jews fighting to this day because of that fatal mistake. You know, let's just believe God. Let's not try and help God. Let's not run ahead of God. The last part of verse 17 simply says, Stand ye still. Stand ye still. And I'm, I am more guilty than anybody of not standing still and waiting on God. I'm preaching to myself. So, what did the Jews do? Well, verse 18, it says, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Can you picture this scene? I can imagine him going up to the prophet and giving him a bear hug. That had to be the best news they could have possibly heard. And the people are shouting with this deafening noise. And then the king hits the dirt. And they worship. Verse 19 says, And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. It had to be deafening. They praise God. They worship God. And a revival erupted. You know, they thanked God for His goodness. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. We don't need to help God. God doesn't need our help, but He sure likes our praise. He sure likes our worship, our exaltation. He inhabits praise, the Bible says. When God hears praise, He says, I want to be in the midst of that. God help us to be a praising people. Praising people. The Bible even speaks of a sacrifice of praise in Hebrews. Think about that. A sacrifice of praise is us praising God when it's hard to do. And when we get bad news... That's a hard time to praise the Lord. And when we offer up praise, nonetheless, it's called a sacrifice of praise. So we need to quit squirming, and we need to start trusting. Trusting. You know, it's a lot like that in salvation, isn't it? You have a lot of people trying to wiggle their way into heaven, basically work and squirm and, and get baptized and do this and do the other thing, when Christ said it is finished. Stand still. On March 5th, 1981, I was, I was like the rich young ruler trying to make myself righteous enough to inherit heaven. And really, Christ just simply said, follow me. Just, just follow me. You know, I think of Saul of Tarsus, same way. He was on a rampage in his, his twisted, distorted zeal, trying to do something for God, and, and he was doing the exact opposite. And God finally had to get him by the nap of the neck there on the outskirts of Damascus, make him blind, sit him on a stool for three days to think this whole thing over, and Saul was ready to get saved. Stand still. Stand still. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saves us. It's the grace of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Stand still. 
It is finished. So we see this different plan. This different plan. Fourthly, we see this dominant prevailing. This dominant prevailing. In verse 20, it says, And they rose early in the morning and went forth unto the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. Now that's a weird way to fight a war. Weird, weird way to go to battle, putting the singers up front, no armor, no spears, no swords. I'm sure the, the Moabites and the Ammonites saw these guys coming out with their instruments and said, ha, ha, you with the tuba, what are you going to do, blow me to death? Ha, you with the violin, you're going to run me through with your bow? Hey, Bruno, get a load of this, you know, you're going to sing us to death, guys. You can just hear the mocking going on here as they come out. But though it's a weird way, it's God's way. The singers are up front. That's God's plan. You know, the unsaved look at God's ways and God's plan, and and it's weird to them. I mean, you can't work your way to heaven, really? It's just by, by repenting or changing my mind about sin and placing all my faith in Christ, really? Yeah, I said earlier today, there's just really two religions or two ways. And people miss the simplicity of God's way, just repentance and faith, repentance and faith. They miss it. That's God's way. Sometimes it's too simple for them. My father-in-law was a very intelligent individual. He really struggled with getting saved back in 1987. I'll never forget, I think it was a June day, when it clicked. We were in my little office in the first building, and it clicked. He grabbed my Bible. He said, let me see that. And he reread once for himself once more Romans 10:13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he said, that's so simple. I'll never forget to me how weird it looked. And, and having heard all these, these works, plans of salvation, but God's plan of salvation has been in the book for thousands of years. It's God's way. Don't miss it. But after salvation, let me just say this. You're saved by grace through faith. After salvation, we're to walk by faith. Colossians says, uh, as you have received Christ Jesus, your Lord, so walk ye in Him. So how do you receive Him? Well, you receive Him by faith. How are you to walk in Him? By faith. Nonetheless, it's God's way. So does God's way work? Well, we pick up the story in verse number 22 here. It says, And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. What happened? Well, God started a civil war amongst them here. I don't know how it took place. Maybe somebody uh, kiddingly said, your, your, your mother wears army boots. And, you know, the, the other guy took him serious and said, what? And then he shoved him, and this guy shoved him back, and a sword was drawn. One guy uh, ran another one through, and, yeah, you killed my brother, you dirty rat. And he, he killed this guy, and, and pretty soon it just starts rumbling through, and they're all fighting with each other, kind of like a hockey thing that breaks out, you know? And, and the last part of verse number 23 says, 
And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. Verse 24 says, And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth. And notice these words, And none escaped. It got down to the last two guys, and they, they ran each other through at the same time, and fell over dead at the same time, and everybody was gone. Only God could have done that. Only God could have turned impending doom into a glorious victory here, which He did. And in verse 25, it says, And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. It was so much. Have you ever had God turn doom and gloom into a glorious victory here? That's exactly what happens here. I, I've had that happen. It is wonderful. And you're reminded of Romans 8.28. Truly all things do work together for good to them that love God. So after three days of burying and, and gathering up the stuff, verse 26 says, And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the valley of Barakah, or blessing, Unto this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them, to go again to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets unto the house of the Lord. You notice what they did? They went right back to church again. <laughs> if it was good enough for them when their backs were to the wall, it's good enough for them now when they've gotten the victory. What a testimony. Verse number 29 says, And the fear of God was in all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. Can you imagine the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Chaldeans and all these other uh, mites and ites, whatever they are, hearing what had happened here? They said, we're not going to mess with Jehoshaphat. We're not going to mess with the Jews anymore here. And it was quite a testimony to the inhabitants around and by the way, that's a reason why we need to go through battles quietly, with a good attitude, because it's a tremendous testimony to our relatives and neighbors and co-workers. Your unsaved loved ones need to see that. We see the duplicated problem. We see the divine potentate. We see the different plan. We see the dominant prevailing. And finally, we see the delightful peace. There is peace. There is rest. There is quiet. Verse 30 says, so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. You know why God gives us battles? So that we appreciate the peace afterwards. Obviously, he gives us battles to drive us closer to him, but life's not always a battle. There are, there are valleys, there are mountains, and if it was a valley all the time, it would cut into our time with God, and we would just be putting out fires all the time, putting up dikes all the time. But... We go through them and we come out of them. We go through them and we come out of them. And it really makes us appreciate the placid waters when the peace settles back in, the rest settles back in. Isaiah 11 says of God that His rest is glorious. It really is. In fact, Hebrews says there remaineth a rest to the people of God. If you're going through a trial, if you're going through a valley, if, if you're going through some suffering, take 
heart as you read this story in 2 Chronicles 20. These things are written for our admonition on whom the end of the world has come. That's us. And again, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But our God is faithful in that He will not allow you to suffer above that which you're able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be also able to bear it. Because the battle is not yours, it's God's. It's God's. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.